Straw Hut Media. Many of us are now in our fourth week of the safer at home or shelter in place orders. As of this recording, in the US alone, there are now more than 300,000 confirmed cases of coronavirus and more than 9,000 related deaths. It's scary and it's weird. A lot of us are suddenly unemployed and going completely stir crazy. But our dogs are the happiest they've ever been, so that's a silver lining. Our guest today is here to help address some of the uncertainty and questions that have loomed over us the last few weeks. What even is COVID-19? Did it come from a bat? Why weren't we more prepared? When do we get a vaccine? And most importantly, how can we do our part to protect the people around us? I'm Levi Chambers, and this is Pride. Just the phrase global pandemic sounds like science fiction. It conjures images of Dustin Hoffman in a hazmat suit and Gwyneth Paltrow collapsing in her kitchen. It reminds us of Brad Pitt counting the seconds before a person is turned from a regular person into a zombie. Even though Hollywood gives us ridiculous scenarios like these when it comes to pandemics, real life actually feels pretty scary right now too. So we found an infectious disease researcher and specialist to help us understand what's really going on. His name is Dr. Ludovic Desveen. I actually go by Ludo. Ludo is an assistant professor in medicine at New York University Grossman School of Medicine. And, uh, and my role is actually director of uh, high containment laboratories. He says he first became interested in infectious disease during his PhD studying viruses in fish. His plan back then was to be a marine biologist. I wanted to study sharks when I was like eight. <laughs> and so, uh, so that's what I did. <laughs> I basically just went from like eight to 18, uh, getting ready to, to study sharks. Um, and, uh, and that was kind of my dream job. But then a new challenge caught his attention. In 1997, he started studying infectious diseases in animals. And for the past 17 years, since he moved to the U.S. from France, he's been working on tuberculosis. As you can probably imagine, his work hours have been crazy lately. I can tell you this week, I think every single day was a 12 to 14 hour day. Um, and I'm by no means... Um, to the level of our healthcare providers, our nurses, um, our doctors, uh, who are pulling in like insane amount of hours every day. Uh, but it's still, it's still rough. It's still, um, you know, when you, when you pull out a 12 hour day, and I'm not talking a 12 hour day, you know, where you take, you know, five breaks in the day, it's like nonstop. So, so those are really kind of tiring and, and, uh, and challenging times for sure. Fortunately for us, Ludo spent some time helping us make a little more sense of what's going on right now. So, a few basics. Coronaviruses are actually pretty common. They're named corona, which is Latin for crown, because under a microscope, little spiky proteins stick out of their membrane in a circle like a crown. Normally, if you come into contact with a coronavirus, you'll probably just end up with a cold. But sometimes, like now, it can be a lot worse. The coronavirus that's causing all this trouble now is a novel coronavirus. Novel meaning new. COVID-19 is an acronym. It stands for coronavirus-induced disease, um, 2019, because the first cases were discovered last year. Um, the, the, the virus itself is actually called uh, SARS-CoV-2. 
It's called SARS-CoV-2 because there was a closely related coronavirus outbreak in the early 2000s that mostly affected Asia. You might remember it. And this previous version of SARS uh, was actually uh, in many countries like the U.S., but it was not a pandemic. It spread to about 8,000 people and killed almost 800. Compared to COVID-19, the number of people infected in that earlier SARS outbreak is actually pretty small. With COVID-19, the number of confirmed cases worldwide has surpassed 1.2 million, and the death toll is almost at 70,000. But the, the basis for both diseases is, is quite the same. That's why there's this common name, SARS, which stands for Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome. So, um, you know, it's all in the name, basically. Uh, that's what COVID-19 is. It's, it's, a, it's an infectious disease that mostly targets the lungs. And, um, and in some patients, and as we see uh, across the world, you know, um, uh, thousands of people uh, create this very acute respiratory distress uh, that can eventually be fatal. Because of his field of study, Ludo was among the first to hear about this novel coronavirus. There are a lot of watchdogs um, across the world that are kind of um, hunting uh, the next pandemic um, so we can be ready. He says a lot of those networks were reporting cases of a bad respiratory disease in China in mid-December. And because of the first SARS epidemic in the early 2000s, he and his colleagues were concerned. They also heard that it was a zoonosis meaning uh, a pathogen that uh, might have jumped from animals. You've probably heard about the bat soup theory, that COVID-19 started in a bat soup in Wuhan, China. While it's a possible origin story, people have used it as an excuse to be racist. Don't be racist. More recently, we've heard that pangolins might have been involved. Pangolins, also called scaly anteaters, look like an armadillo and an anteater had a baby. They're equal parts adorable and terrifying worth a Google. Whenever zoonosis is involved, Ludo says there's cause for concern. Because a jump into the human population means that, you know, the virus has adapted, it's found a new host, and if, uh, if we're unlucky, which we are, that, that virus finds a kind of a favorable new environment to thrive. Um, that's something to be concerned about. In fact, a lot of deadly infectious diseases jumped from animals. Ebola, swine flu, Zika, West Nile, rabies, bird flu, anthrax, and a lot more. Still, in the first few weeks of the outbreak, people didn't realize how bad COVID-19 really was. I feel like the more I learn about this, the less there is to worry about. I was about to say the same thing. Let me tell you something. This virus should be compared to the flu because at worst, at worst, worst case scenario, it could be the flu. Without a vaccine, the flu would be far more deadly. This is yet another attempt to impeach the president. Maybe because uh, China uh, wasn't necessarily very um, um, honest about their, their original numbers. And so we were seeing some numbers in terms of mortality rate uh, that were, okay, we're, you know, maybe at five times above um, what would be seasonal flu, which is high, but, you know, there's, there's actually things that are much, much uh, deadlier. China's fudged numbers made it seem like COVID-19 wasn't nearly as contagious or as deadly as it really was. Ludo said no one anticipated it would spread so far and so fast. I think once uh, we started to get some data from countries outside of China, um, I think that um, people started to realize this is not the flu, this is not even a bad flu, this is, this is going to be uh, something very uh, uh, of consequence. 
And something big like this requires big action from governments all over the world. It's true that the pandemic is bad in itself. People are getting sick and people are dying. But at the same time, there's enormous stress on the healthcare system, the economy, and people on a personal level. Not that there's ever a good time for someone like Donald Trump to be president, but this one, this is especially bad. I don't believe you need 40,000 or 30,000 ventilators. You know, you go into major hospitals sometimes, they'll have two ventilators. And now all of a sudden they're saying, can we order 30,000 ventilators? So, um, so I'm not speaking on behalf of my institution. So, but nevertheless, I'm going to start, I'm going to try to stay uh, as neutral as possible. I do have a lot of opinions about this current government, uh, both as a gay man and as a researcher and an immigrant. Um, but, um, but I think the one number one thing is, um, I think the government should absolutely have a much clearer message and a much stronger message. Um, because right now, um, and I think we've been used to to this kind of uh, situation for the past three years, um, there's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of mixed messaging that's coming from the top. And, you know, in any organization, not just a government, I think in, in any enterprise, actually even in a family, you know, uh, if the two parents are telling their kids different things, um, you know, it's a very confusing message overall. So I think that's exactly what we're experiencing right now. Um, you know, on uh, whether it is on treatment or on respiratory protection or, uh, you know, on whether this is a big deal or not. I think that's the number one thing that should definitely happen is, is streamlining, clarifying um, and reinforcing the message. Ludo says a good way to clarify the message is to put the specialists in the forefront. People from uh, like Anthony Fauci or other people at uh, CDC uh, should definitely be uh, kind of front and center uh, because usually they can deliver a strong message. And the way they can deliver a strong and clear message is also if there's no interference, you know, and, and kind of political backdoors uh, to try to, um, to kind of temper that message. I think that's the most important part. A big message from the specialists, social distancing and flattening the curve. Cases spike. A bunch of people need medical advice at once, causing a curve. But social distancing could flatten that curve, experts say, and save lives. So it's actually a really interesting concept. It's, not, it's definitely not a new concept. I think a lot of infectious disease specialists and epidemiologists are very familiar with that. And so the idea is really, I think, the very basic uh, or basis of the flattening the curve approach is we do not want to overwhelm our healthcare system. So by distancing ourselves from each other, um, by uh, getting tested, by uh, all the measures that have been put in place, what we're trying to do is really kind of spread out um, the number of cases. That's why by staying home, you're actually saving lives. Hospitals are not designed to accommodate huge amounts of people all needing the same thing. Ventilators keep people with severe cases of COVID-19 breathing, and there actually aren't that many of them. Access to one can be the difference of life and death. If we can spread out the number of people contracting COVID-19 over more time, people have a better chance of beating it. But here's the most important part of flattening the curve. With COVID-19, you can be contagious with the virus for 1 to 14 days before even showing symptoms. That means that even if you're not sick, you still need to stay home to do your part. Even if you're young and healthy and you're not worried for your own health, do it for the people who aren't so lucky.
Another concept similar to flattening the curve is something called herd immunity or community-acquired immunity. If we get enough people who um, have been exposed to the infection, have recovered, uh, there's a really good chance that they've mounted a good immune response. Um, they have antibodies in their blood. Research is still active and ongoing, but Ludo says it's likely that once a person recovers from COVID-19, they won't get it again. Don't take that as gospel, though. He says there are cases that aren't very well documented that suggest people have caught it a second time. But the idea with herd immunity is that once you experience the infection and your immune system fights back, you're basically protected. It kind of erects a wall, I would say, um, you know, between the, be between the people who are susceptible and the people who are protected. It's the same concept as a vaccine. Uh, if you can vaccinate a large enough fraction of the population, uh, then you're going to protect the ones, for example, who cannot be vaccinated. You have a lot of patients um, who um, are undergoing organ transplant, uh, who are undergoing uh, certain chemotherapies for cancer, um, or elderly patients um, who don't respond well or cannot be vaccinated. The goal of herd or community acquired immunity is basically to protect those people who cannot benefit directly from the vaccine. So what about a vaccine for COVID-19? More about that after a quick break. Welcome back. Before the break, we talked about why COVID-19 is serious, how social distancing saves lives, and what it means to flatten the curve. You may have heard comparisons between COVID-19 and the HIV-AIDS epidemic. I asked Ludo what he thought of the comparison. Last year, actually, at, at New York University um, in, in my uh, School of Medicine, we uh, had a, a really fascinating and, and, uh, and, and really phenomenal program where we brought... Um, Physicians who were in the first uh, first kind of lines in the 1980s um, receiving the first HIV/AIDS patients and not really knowing what to do, uh, how to treat these people. They were young people who were showing up and they would die within seven months, and nothing that those physicians could give them would save them. And so, in the sense, and we we call this cycle uh, curing the unknown, because how do you cure something that you don't know and you don't understand? And so, in that respect, I think this is really uh, the fights of infectious disease doctors and and scientists today is how do we face something that we don't know? Um, but I think, um, on the other hand, um, there's so many um, differences in between COVID-19 and, and, and HIV AIDS. And actually, I've seen many, many memes, uh, you know, and posts uh, on social media where people are, are saying kind of to the global community and, and frankly, to to the, the straight community, I would say, um, see... Um, this is when, you know, you're, you're kind of screaming now and saying the government is not helping us. Well, that's how we felt, you know, 40 years ago. And so in that respect, I think it's really important to make that dichotomy is that HIV AIDS was nothing like COVID because it was affecting populations, uh, sex workers, uh, drug users and, and gay men. We were, um, um, you know, kind of got shunned and ostracized and vilified um, because of that. Here, we're all in it together. 
Um, and I think that's a that's a huge difference for sure. Also, you know, obviously HIV AIDS has been raging for 40 years. Um, he has infected 75 million people. It has killed, I think, 35 million people. Uh, so the scale is also vastly different. Ludo actually worked on developing an HIV vaccine at the Pasteur Institute in Paris before moving to the U.S. Still, though medications like PrEP and PEP have made a big impact, an HIV vaccine isn't available yet. But what about a vaccine for COVID-19? I'm sure um, many of you have kind of seen in the news um, people like Anthony Fauci, which are absolutely uh, kind of heroes in our field, um, you know, describing the fact that it's going to be a long uh, battle for us to get a vaccine. You know, they, they talk about 12 to 18 months. That actually would be spectacular if we can uh, if we can succeed in, in developing and distributing a vaccine in less than two years. 12 to 18 months to develop a new vaccine is not much time under normal circumstances. But right now isn't normal circumstances. Right now, the whole world is focused on this vaccine. Bill Gates has even pledged billions of dollars to support the research, which, along with the subsequent testing, takes a lot of work. Ludo knows because he worked on developing a vaccine for HIV. The development of a vaccine, usually it starts with kind of an idea. Ludo says the first step is finding the parts of the pathogen that you think will cause a reaction. And the word pathogen, as a side note, just means something that can cause disease, a bacteria, virus, worm, or fungus. So you pull out different parts of the pathogen, put them into a cell, and watch what happens. Ludo says there's also artificial intelligence that can help with this step. And that can take, you know, anywhere between uh, one or five or, or more years, actually, to find those candidates. And then there's a formulation process uh, that needs to take place. And the next step is usually, and I know it's is usually a step that's not very popular, but it's actually really important is, is the testing in, in uh, laboratory animals. Uh, because we need to make sure that the formulation of the vaccine is uh, safe to use, but also we need to learn about it to know, is it efficient? Is it driving a good immune response? Um, are there side effects? After that, you apply for authorization to do clinical trials. And there's multiple phases. I'm sure you've heard that in the media. There's phase one, two, three. I don't want to go through the details of those, but all those phases of development, which are basically meant to test um, not only the efficacy of the, vi the vaccine, but also um, the fact that it's not harming people, that it's not driving too much uh, secondary effect again. Um, those can take up to 10 to 15 years in, in real time. That's actually a, a timeline that's pretty uh, classic for, for other vaccines. So, so now you can see uh, why kind of producing a vaccine against coronavirus in two years seems like uh, something out of science fiction. Hopefully, because there's so much engagement at, at, uh, at the global level, uh, maybe it'll be, it'll be possible. One of the ways that researchers are trying to jumpstart the vaccine process is to look to the vaccines that we already know are successful for similar viruses. So I think one of the first steps that's going to be done, um, I think they're using because of, of the need of kind of shortening some of those steps, I think they're going to start off with um, vaccines that we already know, not necessarily for their specificity, but for, um, um, let's say, the packaging, uh, let's say the way they're delivered. Um, so vaccines that we already know are safe to be delivered in that format. Another method researchers are using to speed things up is to try newer vaccines that are safer off the bat. 
These don't contain what are called attenidated viruses, which is a weaker version of the virus. The idea there is that it pushes your immune system to produce the right antibodies without having to really fight the virus. Some vaccines that use attenated viruses are the ones for measles and yellow fever, but those vaccines can't be rushed. They're actually going for vaccines that are more um, kind of created in a molecular fashion. So they're much cleaner. They have a, a really high level of safety. Um, so I think that's why they're going to go with kind of this more modern approach, uh, which is also faster to develop. Um, and so very early on, I think in the first phase one um, clinical trials for those vaccines, they're going to escalate the dose starting with with very low dose and see do we get you know redness at the site of injection and then if we don't on like let's say 50 patients they're going to increase the dose and see you know if if there's a kind of increase uh sec um, kind of um, unwanted effects or not and then kind of proceed with caution in that in that uh, respect i think the really the what they're trying to cut down is uh, starting off from what we already know and what's already developed in, in by science uh, nowadays. Hopefully, with the attention of the global scientific community, the support of governments around the world, and a big chunk of change from the wealthiest people on Earth, we'll have a vaccine in record time. So we're in this weird place with coronavirus where honestly I even feel like sometimes I look out the window like half expecting to see it is that weird like that almost like the quiet place like it's <laughs> going to climb down my roof and come through the door should <laughs> yeah should listeners be afraid of the coronavirus um i think afraid i mean let me put it a different way i don't think you can tell people whether they should or should not be afraid because fear is a thing that is really incredibly hard to control. So I think I think people um, should um, people can let themselves be afraid because it is scary. Um, you know when um, when you don't know if you're gonna make it till the end of the month um, um, alive because you're an 80 year old man with um, you know metastatic cancer. Um, or um, make it through the end of the month financially um, because you're a single mom with three kids. Um, it is incredibly scary. So I think there's there are reasons to be scared. I think people can let themselves be scared. But I think the best, um, uh, you know, if you have to give a, a, an advice is more, how do you tackle that fear? How do you, how do you kind of... Um, uh, control it how do you once you've let it kind of uh, happen you know how do you go back to a position where like okay what can i do now to keep myself and my family safe um you know um how can i do to help uh for example that can be maybe one thing to go to if you if you don't want to focus on your fear focus on somebody else uh focus on the you know the elderly neighbor who cannot go to the supermarket and uh, you could figure out a way of doing a uh, grocery shopping for them so I think there are a lot of ways of combating fear. I think fear needs to happen because it's just hard to control. Um, and I don't know a lot of people who can control their fear. I do know some some of them. Uh, some people who are in the front line, I can tell you they're fearless. But um, but I think it's, um, or at least um, it, the way they're experiencing their fear doesn't interfere with uh, their ability to function. And I think that's, that's an important thing to do. You uh, work with deadly viruses every day does the coronavirus scare you uh it doesn't actually <laughs> i'm gonna be honest um 
I um, so I work my my main um, research topic is tuberculosis, which has been with us for far longer than uh, than this coronavirus. Um, it infects um, an estimated two billion people in the world. And and that's actually been a, a bit of the messaging and the verbing that got mixed. I think um, a lot of researchers, a lot of doctors were saying, you know, um, what about the flu? What about TB? What about malaria? And I think a lot of people um, took it for this is no big deal. But I think what we were trying to say is that um, people have not been paying attention to infectious disease, especially in developed countries. Uh, we consider it a thing of the past. We consider it a thing of, you know, sub-Saharan Africa. Um, but it's a reality. It's a reality everywhere. I think now uh, is the best evidence of that. Um, so so I think um, overall in the grand scheme of thing, I think this virus is, is not necessarily scary for people who work with pathogens all the time. I think it's scary, um, you know, the similar way that I was mentioning that, you know, you cannot necessarily control fear. Um, but I think it, it um, um, it's important to just um, keep um, being functional in the face of it. Staying brave doesn't mean pretending it doesn't exist, though. Ludo says we all need to be more aware of the fact that infectious diseases are everywhere, and we as a society need to be prepared to deal with them. We are one pandemic away from uh, a major uh, downfall to a lot of our um, kind of what we take for granted. And and I know it's going to sound scary, but this is not the one. Um, this is not the pandemic that's going to end civilization. Let's put it that way. Uh, we'll we'll get through it. Um, it'll eventually die down. I, I have all confidence that we'll come up with treatments, maybe with a vaccine. Um, maybe I'll come back next year and then we'll have a vaccine, hopefully. Um, um, but, you know, when you look at the at the numbers, um, you know, with the mortality rate um, that kind of oscillate between 0.5 and, and 6%, um, I think, for the worst countries. Um, just to put it out there, some some infectious disease, they have mortality rate of 70 percent um, and they infect across all ages. So I think the most important part is we absolutely need to consider infectious disease as a crucial element uh, that we need to be prepared for exactly the same way that we are for for climate change. If you could give people three pieces of advice or three things that you really wish that they would take seriously right now to help flatten the curve, what would those three things be? Uh, so I think number one would be stay at home as much as you can. I think that's a, that's a really important thing. Um, you know, I still commute. Um, I take the subway in New York City. Uh, if I take it early enough, um, there's a couple of people with me in the subway car. Um, if I take it later in the day, there's 20 or 30 people with me in the subway car, uh, even to this day. And I think there are states right now in the U.S. that actually have not put in place uh, kind of those distancing policies. And I think that's uh, that's a very dangerous uh, game to play. So I think that's the number one thing to do is stay at home and listen to uh, those kind of social distancing recommendations. So number one is stay home as much as possible. I think the second thing um, is definitely um, pay attention to uh, when you're going out. Um, 
the things that you're touching. Um, I think I've seen a lot of people wearing gloves. Um, I would recommend if you want to wear gloves, they're not a great thing to wear because, you know, your hands are sweaty. Uh, you can actually develop some skin problems with them. So I think you should, you should definitely change them as often as you can. But if you're going to wear a glove, like just wear them on one hand. Um, because if you're wearing them on both hands and then you're touching your face and then you're putting your hand in your pocket, you're, you're basically kind of negating the effect of gloves. And the same problem goes with masks, I think. And I'm not going to go into the, the kind of the, the major issue that's going uh, across the country and the world right now and whether or not the public should wear masks. But if you're going to wear a mask, if you're going to wear a mask that you've made or, or mask that you managed to buy, there are a lot of resources out there to really instruct you on how to wear them, how to take care of them, clean them, change them, um, adjust them. Um, I think that's the second advice I would I would give is really um, is if you're going to wear protective measures um, because you have to go out, uh, do it do it in a smart way. Don't don't just slap on two pair of gloves and and a scarf, um, you know, because that might actually not protect you at all. Number two, if you have to go out. Protect yourself in a smart way and pay attention to what you touch. And then the third thing I would say, um, I think it's like find something um, that help fight the fear. Uh, I think it's a very um, and take care of your mental health. So I think the both things are connected. Uh, I think it's really important. Um, we we've actually discussed this a lot uh, amongst researchers uh, with uh, physicians who are in the front lines. Uh, mental health is the only thing that's going to um, get people through this. Um, and so it can, you know, it can be things that we kind of talked about, you know, do make puzzles or, uh, or take a hobby, do painting, um, you know, um, FaceTime or Zoom with your family and your friends. Uh, but I think, I think really working on people's mental health and taking care of the mental health of your, of your loved ones and family, I think that's a really important part. So that would be, that would be actually maybe one of the most important ones. That's right. Number three is just take care of yourself. You don't have to be productive right now, but you should try and stay busy. Have a movie marathon of all the Lord of the Rings movies. Rewatch every episode of The Office. Do a puzzle or play a video game like Ludo. So before <laughs> before the pandemic, I was playing um, Control. Uh, which is really fascinating, but incredibly dire. So, so kind of, uh, and I'm almost done with it. But um, it was really hard to to play control um, with everything that was going on. So I actually downloaded uh, Medieval. Um, There's like a reboot of Medieval, which is like an older game. Um, and honestly, Medieval is my life right now. I know everybody is. Uh, I think is playing. Uh, I forgot the name. Um, uh, Animal Crossing on on Switch, right? But um, but honestly, medieval. You have a little um, skeleton uh, knight that you know hacks uh, things with his uh, skeleton arm. I think it's it's just making my day. I need I need something that's bubbly uh, when I come home. That's like my best uh, my best uh, respite. We're all in this together, Pride listeners. We're gonna be okay. Make sure you stay in touch with friends and family with FaceTime, Zoom, Skype, or any other video chat options. Maybe start a TikTok or an Instagram account for your lizard. Whatever it is, make sure you take care of yourself.
Pride is a production of Straw Hut Media. If you like the show, leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're tuning in from. Share us with your friends, subscribe, and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Pride. You can follow me at Levi Chambers. Pride is produced by me, Levi Chambers, Maggie Bowles, and Ryan Tillotson. Edited by Sebastian Alcala. Please stay safe, stay healthy, stay home, and listen to podcasts. Any store that is, like, not critical right now, how do you get people to spend money? Like, are you low on watercolors? Come to Joanne's. We'll do curbside delivery. Painting is very relaxing. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) If I knew how to paint, I would do it.